We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and this morning we're just going to go through the first two verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now right away, right, right as he starts out here, Peter identifies himself as an apostle a messenger, uh, an apostle, not of the work of man, not by the will of the church, nothing else. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who was directly chosen and commissioned by Christ to communicate God's word to the body of Christ, to communicate God's will and truth to the church. That was the purpose of God's call, right, on Peter. As believers in Christ Jesus, we, of course, have to study and we have to receive and study God's word. And we do that in particular as we have received it from these apostles, from Peter and Paul and others, these men of God that were chosen and commissioned by the Lord to bring us his word. And we regularly rehearse these themes of God's Word, and we regularly apply God's Word in our lives. That's, the, that's what we need to do as believers of Jesus. In these opening verses of Peter's first epistle, first letter to the believers in Asia Minor, we want to consider one of the important themes of God's Word, and that is this theme of election. And we want to do that, we want to consider that by asking three important questions. One, what does it mean to be God's elect? Two, how are we chosen by God? And two, and three, pardon me, what are we chosen for? So what does it mean to be God's elect? By being elected, or the word election, as it is used in the Bible, nothing political, not a democracy, nothing to do with anything that we would think of in our current context. But when it's used in the Bible, at the word election, it refers to God's choice, God's choosing of a person or a group of people for a specific purpose, a mission or salvation. The emphasis is on God's choosing, that God has done something. God has initiated something. God has given grace. God works by his Holy Spirit. God is allowing a heart to be transformed, whatever it may be. God is at work. And in fact, the phrase in the NIV that I read from in verse 2, who have been chosen, that's an elaboration, that is the explanation of being called God's elect. Some of your versions, if you were following along in some other version, 
Don't, doesn't even have that phrase, who have been chosen. It doesn't even have that phrase. It just says God's elect, uh, you know, uh, and then goes into the how we're chosen portion of it. So that phrase, to be God's elect, is really is this idea that we have been chosen by God and that we are to, in some way then, understand what that means and what the implications of that choice are. Now, this theme of election, this theme of this idea of God choosing is prominent in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And if you think about all of the Old Testament examples, a number of examples, but some of the most prominent ones are the fact that God chose Abraham. God called Abraham. And he said, I want you to come out of all that you are familiar with, and I want you to go to the promised land. I want you to go to a place that you do not know and you have no idea what will happen to you, but I want you to be, obey me, and I have chosen you. And through that choice, we come then to God's choosing of the people of Israel. He he chooses a group of people and he says through you the seed will come the messiah will come and through you not because you are so great not because you are so mighty not because you have accomplished something but i have chosen you so that through you the world may be blessed that all the nations will be blessed and he says you know i've chosen you and then we see how god chooses the prophets and he calls them some of these prophets they say don't don't choose me i don't want to go I, I don't want to do this and and god chooses or calls and says go do this go say this you know tough as it be as, as it may be or go to nineveh or go go and tell the people or take this act upon yourself or in this way in which you will communicate my message do it in such a way that it's going to hurt you it's going to it's going to be really difficult for you but i have chosen you for this i have before even you were born from your mother's womb i've chosen you and then as you get into the new testament you you see this continuing theme that even and you know, keeping with that the idea of the prophets that john the baptist the last of the prophets as such as the bible describes it in that way you know that he was chosen to be that forerunner of Jesus, to declare that the Messiah was coming, that the kingdom of God was at hand, and God chooses in that way. And then as Jesus begins his ministry, we see him choosing the disciples and calling them to himself and saying, I want you to come and follow me and to serve me and to do this. Or he calls the disciples. And then we saw the call of God on Paul or you know, on others in the church. And so we see this idea, this, this, this continuing pattern of God choosing and calling and so on. Now, the doctrine of election, what we talk about in the church, when we talk about doctrine, we're really talking about the beliefs and practices that are understood biblically and taught by the church, right? So these are the ways in which we would say, here is the doctrine about you know, righteousness or the doctrine about uh, salvation or the doctrine about uh, justification. And so we, we teach these things and we talk about these things so that we have a shared understanding, a common vocabulary, and a means by which we can say, okay, this is what the Word of God is, is explaining to me and that, that I need to apply. Now, in terms of this doctrine of election, it is typically related to the concepts of predestination foreknowledge and free will so now the reason i'm going to explain these terms just a little more just a little bit is because and the, and the focus of doing that is not so that we will know about church history and we will know all about theology and we'll be 
you know, able to systematically analyze everything about doctrine and so on. But the point that I want to make by explaining a little bit more about these words is so that we, we understand what is it that the Lord is calling us to? What is he choosing us for? What has he done? And then where do we stand as a local church? Because in the body of Christ, there has been a lot of debate about these topics. What does these mean? How should we understand it? What do we do to apply it? And these debates have led to great disagreements and very, very hard divisions. And so we have multiple denominations in the body of Christ, primarily, well, one of the primary causes being disagreements about some of these topics. So I'm not going to, if you sit here while I go through this topic and you say, well, I don't really agree with what you're saying, I'm glad to talk to you and we can have the conversation in the sermon discussion on Wednesday and other contexts and things like that. But it's very possible that you may listen to what I have to say and say, mm, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. Because this debate has raged on for centuries with much more learned people and far more, you know, people, folks that have been, you know, pressing into the Lord and trying to seek Him and understand this and so on. And so these debates have raged. But this morning, I want to quickly go through some of these points. And then I want to get, out, get to where, what does this mean for us? Because regardless of how God has chosen or what that choosing has looked like, there is a response that we need to have in our lives. And in our daily lives today, it really doesn't matter if we have understood the specific details of the doctrine, it matters very much how we apply what the Lord has called us to. And so week after week, my questions that I raise or the points that I'm sharing or the truths that we're going through, it is to drive us to the practical application of the Word of God, right? It's not just so that we would be theologically informed or that doctrinally sound, we, we need to be doctrinally sound, but that's not the main objective. The main, and so that you can debate with somebody else, you can go find a person who doesn't believe like this and say, I know all about this, let me argue with you. But rather that you would say, what do I need to do to live this out? And so when you talk about election in terms of the history of the church, there are two predominant Protestant views about election and salvation. There are two prominent Catholic views, or in the Catholic Church too, but I'm not even getting into that, I'm just touching on what's in the Protestant Church as such. And the two views, two sort of points of view and camps are typically referred to as the Reformed position and the Arminian position. And that's commonly, commonly referred to as Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, Calvinists or Reformed, those that are in the Reformed camp wouldn't, they don't prefer to be called Calvinists, they prefer to be called Reformed, but these are the camps, right? And by the way, keep in mind the context of what we studied in Corinthians. Right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you, you align yourself with apostles and you say, I belong to Peter and I belong to Apollos and I, you know, Paul, who's he? And you know, you, you do this. And he says, none of this is, of, is valid because what you really need to say is, I belong to Christ. And what tends to happen in this debate is that you will notice that people start to identify with certain leaders. John Calvin in this, in this context was one of the proponents and clear articulated 
clearly articulated this position that is being referred to as the reformed position. And then Joseph uh, or Jacobus, Arminius, was the one who was ar articulating the, the statements that came to be known as Arminianism. It has nothing to do with the country of Armenia, just so that you're one, if you're wondering. So it, it is because of this man, Jacobus, Arminius, that it's known in that way. But you notice that the debate starts to focus on people and starts to align with people and says, oh, I, I'm, I'm of Calvin, I'm of Arminian, you know, Arminius. And that's really not what the Lord is calling us to. That is our reality in the church, but it's not what he has called us to. He says we need to say we belong to Christ. We are of Christ. And so these predominant views and so on, the Reformed view sees election as unconditional in the sense that God chooses unconditionally, that there's no action really on our part, that it is entirely driven by his sovereign will, and that there is no choice as such or a response of choice on our part, right? So it is entirely driven by the Lord himself. The emphasis in the view is the, is the depravity of humankind and that we are unable to contribute anything to salvation, so it has to be entirely by God. And I agree with that point in the sense that we are unable to save ourselves. We are not able to come to these positions of salvation or understand what Christ has done for us in and of ourselves and then say logically, completely, volitionally, you know, I do all of this. It, we do re need, we do require the grace of God. We do require the, the Lord illuminating and illumining the, the truth of his word and what he has done from creation, you know, from the very beginning. To, that has to make, that has to come alive to us, that has to be light to us that only God can do. So in those, in that sense, Yes, absolutely. It has to be that God is initiating it. But the implication of this position is that, the, sort of the extreme implication of it, is that you are elect or saved or unconditionally called to be this child of God even before you are born. That, or, you know, that this is who you are. And you have no means of affecting that. There's nothing that you can do. You're either going to be saved or elect or you're not, right? And that's the idea of that position. Again, I'm, I'm simplifying this. I'm saying this very quickly. There are a whole bunch of nuances to this and there are a whole bunch of details about, you know, when does that happen? Uh, is it after the fall, before the fall that this condition happened? How do you respond? There's a whole bunch of things that can go into that and to understand that. The other view, what is referred to as the Arminian position, is much more conditional. The idea is that as God reaches out, both by common grace, the grace of God that is revealed in the world around you, the fact that you see creation and you know that there is a creator, all of that common grace of God is then translating into special grace, into the specific grace of God that woos us, that affects us, that results in bringing that word of God and that light of God into your heart. The, this position would say that you have the opportunity to respond to that or to resist it, that you would reject it, that you would say no. I, and I know people personally who say to me, who have said to me, I know what you're saying is true, 
but I will not accept it. One, one young man said to me, if I accept what you're saying is true, then I have to say that I was wrong, and I won't do that, right? And so people will resist what is true, what is light, what is right, and will reject. And so this position says that even if God is reaching out, even if God, the message comes as such, that people would reject and that it is not foreordained that they would be saved. It is rather foreknown that God knows who will accept or reject or who will respond. Jesus knew the hearts of all men. He knew what was going on when they were receiving him or not receiving him. He knew who would betray him. He knew who would return to him after having betrayed him. He knew who would die in their remorse or not. He knew all of that. But he dealt with all people with the same love, that unconditional love, but allowing the people to respond according to how they would respond. And as I'm saying these things, you may already have figured out where I stand on this or where we stand as a church. We believe that there is the work of the Lord to reach out to us, to speak to us, to illumine the Word of God, but that there is a response that is necessary from us. And so this, this position of being elect, of being God's elect, of having been chosen by the Lord is in response to God's truth being revealed and our obedience, our responding to the grace of God to say, Lord God, I accept you, I receive you, I want to appropriate this justification by faith, this righteousness of God. Again, I'm going through this very quickly and, uh, and, uh, and I realize that there may be some more questions that are raised in your minds as we go through this, but I want to get to the next question. Because the next question says, how are we chosen by God? And what Peter says is this. We are God's elect through God's foreknowledge. So no matter what position you take on the Calvinistic side or the Arminianistic side or whatever else, it's very clear that there's the foreknowledge of God. God who is omniscient. God who is all-knowing, God who knew us even before we were born, God who knows the days of our, of our lives, and God who knows everything about our past, our present, and our future, is for, for knowing the choices we make, the responses that we have, the places that we stumble. He knows all of that. And so it says here that God has chosen us through his foreknowledge. So there is this aspect of God giving us this opportunity to choose, but because he already knows, you can say, well, then is it, is it rigged in some way? No, he's still giving us the opportunity to respond to him, but he knows how, are we, how we're going to respond. He knows whether we are sincere in our response. He knows whether even when we say, oh, yeah, 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 I accept, whether we actually are accepting or not. He knows our hearts better than we know ourselves. And so the Bible says that we are chosen by God through God's foreknowledge and by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, typically, we talk about sanctification, this process of being made more like Jesus, this process of being made holy, this process of being transformed. We talk about that as what happens during our Christian journey. We have become believers in Christ Jesus, and now he continues to sanctify us until such time that he returns and 
you know, draws us to himself or, or unites us to himself with the new body and everything else. But in this context, it's saying that even the very act of Christ Jesus, even the very salvation that we experience is because of this work of Christ. Otherwise, how would this sin that has made us blemished, how would be we be cleansed from it so as to come into the throne of grace? That the, what we sang about even, the work of God, of Christ on the cross, and the work of the blood of Christ that is shed on our behalf that washes us white as snow is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit right from the start to make us, it, to make it possible for us to even be brought into the throne of grace. So when we repent of our sins, when we come to him and we say, Lord, I repent of all that I have done here and I receive your sacrifice on my behalf and we respond to his wooing, there is still a need for the Holy Spirit to cleanse us, to wash us white as snow, to transform us. And so people will describe to you, especially if you've gone through some... Uh, by the way, this is not an expectation that every single person has to have this. But many people will describe to you that experience of salvation. They listened to a message, they came forward, they, they did something. And they can tell you, I felt, I knew, I experienced, I was conscious of this change that took place in me. And you know that the Holy Spirit has been at work to do something. For others, it may not have been some dramatic encounter like that. It may have been you grew up in a Christian home or you grew up learning this and it may have been a gradual process. But you can point to where the Holy Spirit made a difference, made a change. And so that's what Paul, that's what Peter is pointing to when he says, how are we chosen by God? We are chosen by God through his foreknowledge and we are chosen by God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. But then here's what he's driving to. He says, what are we chosen for? He says, we are chosen to obey Jesus. We're not chosen so that we can boast in our status. You know, look at me. We're not chosen so that we will accomplish great things for ourselves. Look at this. You know, we're not chosen so that we can belong to the best club. You know, I'm in the New Life Fellowship Church Club. Ooh, what a great place to be. We're not chosen for any other reason than to obey Jesus. That's what the Word is telling us. You have been chosen, the Lord, you, God's elect, you have, all of you in these, in these diverse places, you have been chosen so that you will obey the Lord Jesus and that you will be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The sprinkling of blood had a special significance to the Jews. It was an integral part of their sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, as we read about it, especially in Exodus, uh, Exodus 24, verse 8, it says, Moses took the blood of the sacrificed lamb, of the animal that had been sacrificed, and he sprinkled the blood on the people. You know, by the way, if you were worshiping God with the children of Israel in the wilderness, there was a lot of blood. There was a lot of blood all the time. You know, and the, I mean, there's blood being sprinkled on you and blood flowing down the thing and blood flowing down on the sacrifice and blood everywhere. I, you know, I mean, blood. It was just like a lot of blood. You know why? 
Because it was meant to point to and it was meant to show you that there was a need for the sacrifice. There was a shedding of blood and that the price for this sin that you carried was so great that so much blood had to flow. And that's why when Jesus finally goes to the cross and sheds his blood to the very last drop and says it is finished, you would appreciate all that blood that had to be shed for centuries no longer has to be done. You don't have to go around sprinkling. I don't have to stand here and sprinkle blood on you. Yeah, I, and you don't have to go home and figure out which, which of your pets has to die. I mean, yeah, I mean like, you don't have to do that. Th that. That's what happened with the children of Israel, right? They had to take this lamb that was beloved, that was kept blemish-free, and then sacrifice. I mean, you, know, you don't have to do any of that. Why? So that you will appreciate what the, what the Lord has done. You will appreciate what Christ has done. But when Moses sprinkled the blood from the people, he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Do you remember when Jesus, or when he's going through the Last Supper, the, you know, when he's going through with his disciples, what does he say? He lifts the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Right? And, and he's pointing to all of these things. You know, the New Testament is just the commentary of the Old Testament. But he's pointing to these things and saying, all these things that you were experiencing, this blood that was being sprinkled on you, you, you didn't want to just pour it on people. You know, they had to go do other things. You didn't want to be just walking around with blood. So they would just sprinkle the blood. But the whole point was that, that this was meant to show that there was a covenant with God that had, that required the shedding of blood. There was a price to be paid. And then the, shed, the sprinkling of blood was on Aaron and his sons, the priests, to consecrate them, to set them apart. You wanted to show that you were holy and set apart for God, you had to have blood on you. Yeah? And so all of this is going on, and then when we get into Hebrews, it says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was only the blood of Jesus that was done. So because if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying the, of the purifying the flesh, all of that was not enough, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The whole point was that the blood of Christ is applied to us, sprinkled on us, so that we would be set free. We would be found righteous in Christ. You know, so the point that I want to make about that is when you talk about what are we chosen for, we're not chosen to live in our sin. We're not chosen to remain in the state that we were in. We're not chosen so that we can say, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus also, along with everything else. I serve Jesus also, along with all of the other things that I serve. I pursue Jesus also, along with my career and my this and my that and my everything else. But it's to say, I've been set apart. I've been bought. See the blood? See this blood sprinkled all over me? it means that I have been consecrated for Christ. That is the message and the reason why we say we've been chosen. What is the message that we would communicate to somebody else? You need to be sprinkled with blood. 
And nobody will accept that message if they don't see how it has transformed you. If there is no change in you, if there is no change in me, if the sprinkling of the blood has had no effect, why would somebody else agree to that? I said, I don't want to be dead. I don't want any blood sprinkled on me. Why would I do that? It seems absolutely bizarre. It seems absolutely unnecessary. It is only if those who are chosen receive what the Lord has done and live according to that, that somebody else will desire to have blood sprinkled on them too. So here we are. That we would respond and apply the word that we're hearing by being obedient and being cleansed. That we would say, Lord God, it matters not what the denominations have thought about. It just is significant, necessary, important for me to know that I've, chosen, I've been chosen by you. I know you as my Lord and Savior. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, if you don't know God in that way, set things right. Know him. But once you know him as your Lord and Savior, you're saying, Lord, now that I am your elect, now that I'm in the body of Christ, I want to live in such a way that I'm obedient to Christ and I'm glorifying you daily by being cleansed. Every single time the children of Israel had to come before the altar and the sacrifice, they had to be freshly sprinkled on. It wasn't just a one-time thing. There was a sprinkling that happened every time they brought the sacrifice. And there was a need for us to keep coming back to the Lord Jesus and saying, sprinkle your blood on me afresh. Let me avail myself of the blood of Jesus that cleanses me and washes me so that we can live in that victory. Because you see, the last phrase that, Paul, that Peter uses in these two verses is he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. He's, he's writing to people who are going through persecution. He's writing to people who are in the midst of war. He's writing to people who are being put to death. And he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance, not just a little, not just enough to deal with the problem at hand, but abundance. What is it that is tormenting you today? Physical, mental, spiritual? What is the news that you're hearing that you, alarms you today? How in the middle of all of that can you have grace and experience that unmerited favor of God? And how can you have peace? Peace from the Prince of Peace so that that peace guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. When things are all going in ways that you don't like and you don't want and you don't, you don't enjoy in the slightest, how can it be that grace and peace can be yours in abundance? It can happen only if you know that you've been called by the Lord, chosen by Him, that you've responded to Him, that you are God's elect. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you have called us to yourself, that you have chosen us, that you've given us life and given it to us more abundantly. And we thank you, Lord, that you have sought for us, Lord, not just to live our lives here on earth according to our thinking, 
but to be renewed, transformed, sprinkled on by the blood of Christ so that we are sanctified, so that we are set free, so that we are made as white as snow. Oh, what a privilege we have. What a joy. Lord, there is nothing else in this world. There is no philosophy, no religion, no other means by which we may be saved, by which we may receive your election. Lord, may it be so powerfully true in our lives today. Lord, let it be something that drives us every single day. Lord, even as we were reminded yesterday, let it be that this gospel message compels us to live for you and to share this gospel message with somebody else and to say, oh, let me tell you of what the Lord has done. He has chosen me. He has chosen you. Oh, Lord God, we want to love you. We want to respond to you. We want to live for you. Lord God, may grace and peace that only you can give grace and peace be ours in abundance we pray this in jesus name amen